thank you again, church, for the opportunity to be here. Aaron, thank you again for the invitation. It's good to see you all. Thanks for coming back tonight. I checked my watch last night afterwards, and uh, I preached a long time. So I got a shorter outline, and probably won't do any good, but I got a shorter outline, and uh, we can uh, work on there, work on that from there. Now, take your Bible, if you would, and just go to a little short passage in the 17th chapter of the Gospel of Luke. Luke 17, a subject for me that's really one of my favorite subjects. I like to think about it. I like to read about it. I like to study about it. I like to preach about it. I like to share it with others. I like for folks to think about it. I want to encourage you to think about it tonight uh, as we consider uh, a very important concept for our lives as disciples and followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, when John the Baptist came preaching, he came preaching a message, and it was, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. Now, if you, if you look closely at the Scriptures, you'll find out when Jesus came, he came preaching, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. When Jesus was talking to the disciples and they said, teach us to pray, Jesus taught them to pray by saying, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come. There it is. And I just keep finding things all through the Scripture. When Jesus was teaching on the Sermon on the Mount, uh, the greatest sermon that was ever preached, highly underrated by light readers, but it is a great message, a great sermon, a stirring message. If you ever sat down to read your Bible and go, oh, I, I don't know where to read today, go to Matthew chapter 5, read chapter 5, read chapter 6, read chapter 7, Sermon on the Mount. Full, overflowing, encouraging, challenging, directing, uh, the greatest sermon ever preached, the Sermon on the Mount. And in that sermon, in that sixth chapter, he makes a, a directive for his disciples then and his disciples now. And it's this, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. Now, you know where we're going tonight then, don't you? We're going to talk together for a few minutes tonight about the kingdom of God, this overlooked concept. When Jesus was talking to Nicodemus in the third chapter of the Gospel of John. You remember Nicodemus was the Pharisee. He came to Jesus by night and said, you know, uh, no man can do the things that you do uh, unless you're from the Lord, from God. And Jesus said, uh, except a man be born again, the first time he said this, he said, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Jesus went on to say that unless you're born again, you won't enter the kingdom of God. When you receive Christ Jesus as Savior, now sometimes we've reduced it down so much that we don't stop to realize that we're receiving Jesus not only as our Savior, but as our Lord, which is the same thing as a king who has a kingdom. And so when we're saved, we're entering the kingdom of God. Everybody in the world today is either in the kingdom or not in the kingdom. And most people are not in the kingdom. Uh, the way we talk about people and their lives, you know, we Baptists believe in justification, salvation by faith. And, uh, but when you get to look at the way people think, most people think most people are going to heaven. 
But Jesus himself testified in that same Sermon on the Mount, narrow is the way and few there be that find it. What's Jesus saying? Most people aren't going, are not in, nor are they going to enter the kingdom of God. Broad is the way. Wide is the way, Jesus said. And uh, that's where most folks go, the broad way. Now, if you go to most funerals, even in Baptist churches, we figure out a way for everybody to go to heaven. Uh, when it comes to funeral time, it's not justification by faith. You're justified because you're dead. And you get to have eternal life because we've got to say something nice about you. I've never heard a preacher say, I'm really sorry about our brother, but he's in hell right now. Never heard that. You won't probably hear it from me. I have other ways to direct their thinking about situations like that. But a good question for you to ask yourself at any time, and tonight as we're going to approach this, approach this subject is, are you in the kingdom? And if you are in the kingdom, are you aware that you're in the kingdom? Do you let yourself have that awareness? I am a child of the king. I have a king, King Jesus. He is the Lord of my life and my Savior. And, and he has saved me by grace through faith. And I have all my faith and trust in him. And I'm in the kingdom. Let's look at this passage in uh, Luke chapter 17 and start reading with me, if you would, down at verse 20. And being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, Jesus answered them. Now, you got to remember that the Pharisees had a concept of what the coming of the kingdom would be like. And their concept of the kingdom coming was incorrect, okay? And so Jesus, uh, he cut almost everybody slack except Pharisees and Sadducees. He just let stuff blow right over their heads and hit the back wall, okay? And Jesus says this, the kingdom of God is not coming with signs to be observed, like army and horses and armament and battle and conquering the Romans, nor will they say, look, it is here or there. For behold, Jesus said, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. Or some trans trans translations say, the kingdom of God is within you. The idea is, is that the kingdom of God is not an earthly kingdom with boundaries, but it is certainly, absolutely, and really a kingdom. If you really do. Live your life under the lordship of Jesus Christ. You are living in the kingdom. Uh, now, we have an earthly country. We have a great country, a blessed country. Uh, it's not perfect, and it's, and it's struggling more and more each day. But there is the kingdom of God, and uh, it will not fail. It will not be like human kingdoms. Do you remember when Jesus was being interviewed by Pilate uh, before he was... Uh, crucified, and uh, Pilate was uh, trying to find out what all the rah-rah was about the Jews wanting Jesus dead, and he asked him, are you a king? And Jesus said, I am. But, he said, my kingdom, my kingdom, is that word again, my kingdom is not of this world, meaning my kingdom is not like the kingdoms of man on this earth with boundaries and armies and those things. But it is a kingdom. A kingdom is a sphere of rule. Rule. R-U-L-E. Rule. And Jesus rules over our hearts as our Lord. 
and therefore we are in his kingdom. But I want to broaden this discussion of the kingdom out. So to start this discussion about the kingdom, let's start with this, the condition of our present time as, uh, as uh, Arkansas folks in, in the United States of America, uh, living in the time in which we live. We're watching, right now, we're watching uh, 200 years of biblical influence on this country being swept aside. We've been watching it for about 50 years. We've, we've seen it with uh, the uh, lack of the, uh, of the recognition of the sanctity of life and the rise of humanistic ideas that children in the womb have uh, no rights. They're not really alive. They're not really a human when they certainly are. We're seeing it swept aside with marriage and the family, uh, with same-sex marriage, with the ideas and of gender in our time and the total confusion. And actually, it's really uh, just kind of a crazy time. Uh, it seems that if you can go to those radical edges, you're, you're more with it than the folks who stand back and say, wait a minute, it was God who created the heavens and the earth. It was God that says that life is sacred. It's, uh, it's God that said marriage is between a man and a woman. It was God that performed the first wedding. It was God that gave away the first bride. It was God that designed the family. That those are not sociological constructs. Those aren't uh, uh, sociological evolution. Those are divine things that God has given us, and we see those things being swept aside in our time. And the things I'm saying here, I would certainly be canceled, canceled out by the thought police that say, you must think this way or we will cancel you. You are a bigot. You are off the chart. You are now penalized. We have just thrown the flag, and we hope that you are shut out and uh, that you're shunned by all. And that's the way the thought police take it. The view or biblical view or the, of, the, of Scripture is very low. In fact, biblical literacy inside the church is extremely low in our time. The post-Christian era, as uh, Al Mohler said, it is over, and now we're in the sub-Christian era in our country. And it's been moved along uh, in a rapid fashion. In fact, new words have been co coined. I, uh, a recent word that I learned is the word sea change. And sea change is a word for when things change rapidly and dramatically and in in huge fashion where it goes from this to this. It's like a tsunami of change that takes place in a culture. And we've been experiencing that. Some of you know the experience of being uh, frustrated, uh, uh, feeling deep frustration at what's uh, going on. But uh, the Bible says in 1 John, the fifth chapter, uh, John wrote, and he says, the whole world, John wrote, the whole world lies in the sway of the wicked one. And boy, it does. And he's got more tools than he's ever had in his toolbox. <laughs> and he's got more things to work with. But uh, I would tell you, don't lose heart. The condition not only of our culture, but the condition of the church is in a time of emergency. The realization of a faithless faith is a strange thing. There are an enormous number of individuals who are evacuating the church, and there's another new word, and it's the word the nuns. Uh, 
Now, I'm not talking about nuns like Catholic nuns. I'm talking about like the word uh, nun, N-O-N-E, uh, nun. And there are now a rising group of people who are called the nuns. What it means is, in fact, I read a survey just recently about one-fourth of Americans. Now, if, if you were to give them a box to check on a form they're filling out that would say Christian or Jew or whatever, uh, affiliations, uh, Muslim, uh, uh, Buddhist, uh, Hindu, nuns, one in four would check the box, nuns. And many of them would say, well, I'm not religious, but I'm spiritual, whatever that means. And we're in a different time. There have been surveys done inside churches, uh, some of them evangelical churches, some of them mainline churches. And what we've discovered is in those surveys, when people are asked, do you really believe that Jesus was born of a virgin, is a large number of people. In the, a percentage of them, not over 50%, but nearly in some situations that would say, I don't have to believe that Jesus was born a virgin. Many of them don't believe that Jesus literally, physically, bodily, resurrected from the dead. A whole host more, and the number rises on the uh, subject of judgment that men would die and that there's a hell. By the way, that's a new thing in our culture right now, a discussion of judgment and hell, and people literally get offended the whole concept, that you would suggest that that's a possibility for anyone, especially them, that there's judgment or hell. Those things are all out of style in the time in which we live. Some of you may have be uh, familiar with the uh, uh, Christian Smith, who was a professor at Notre Dame, did a, uh, a survey of, uh, of Christian teenagers. And... Uh, it was called, the title of the, of the book that he wrote off of it was called Soul Searching, The Religion and Spiritual Lives of American Teenagers. And here's what he discovered about them. He came up with a three-word description of a great host of teenagers inside Christianity. That would be Baptists and Methodists and Presbyterians and Catholics and all types of teenagers. But is a, a, a consistent these words brought about were they are moralistic in their faith, they are therapeutic in their faith, and they are deistic in their faith. Let me explain what, what that means. When he says they're moralistic, they mean God wants you to be nice and good and fair, and good people go to heaven, and bad people go to hell if there is one. If there is one. And so Christianity becomes about morals. Now, God certainly wants us to be moral people, but I hope you realize Christianity is about the cross and about a Savior for our sins. Moralistic, then it says therapeutic. And the response from the teenagers is, is the goal of life is to be happy and feel good about yourself. Be happy. Therapeutic. That, that's good. And even in modern uh, psychiatry and psychology, the emphasis always is how you feel about yourself or how you feel about things. And so Christianity becomes to them therapeutic. God wants you to be happy. Deism. Deism says there is a God. There is a creator God. But he is not particularly involved in your life. 
except if you have a problem and you go to him. So God's disconnected. Life is about feeling good. <laughs> and uh, also morals are what gets you into heaven or might possibly get you uh, rejected in eternity, but uh, only if there really is a hell. That's a pretty sad situation. This, that is Christless. That is crossless. That is gospel-less. There's no gospel there at all, if that's what people believe. Listen, God's going to save us by his mercy and his grace. He's going to save some of us without a whole lot of information, um, not because we're doctrinally deep or deeply studied, but that we put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ as our Savior and as our Lord. And so I want to say these things, though, to say, be encouraged. The message is the kingdom of God is at hand. The Bible is telling us the kingdom of God is at hand. And it's not a kingdom of man. It's not a make-believe kingdom. It's a real kingdom. Let me give you, let me give you real quick, three dimensions of the kingdom of God. Because when you say the kingdom of God, it's a little bit more complicated than just saying the term and saying Jesus rules, okay? And, and so there, I know for certain, there may be more to know, but I know there are three dimensions of the kingdom of God that we can talk about tonight. And so the, the point is, we live in a failing world. The point is, we live in the midst of humanistic erosion, but the good news is, is that God has a kingdom, and uh, his kingdom is not going to pass away. And, and uh, we can lean and trust in him. Let me give you three dimensions of the kingdom. Here's the first dimension. The kingdom of God is absolute. He is sovereign over all things. He either makes things happen or allows, to make things, or allows things to happen. He's the Lord. Nothing slips through his hand. God doesn't wake up in the morning and, and stagger around like you and me and look over the portals of heaven and go, oh, my soul, look what they did last night while I was sleeping. Oh, man, man, I got to get up earlier to keep up with these people. That doesn't happen. That's not what happens. He is the Lord God Almighty. He's working his plan. And nothing happens without his plan. Evil deeds and evil workers even find that their deeds and actions work ultimately to his plan. The fallen world in which we live in, as difficult as it is, as bad as it gets, it works to his ends. Let me, let me put it to you like this. As, as we move through time and we have seen uh, wars and discouraging things and the work of the devil and all the things that have happened. Let, let me say something to you. And if you get nothing else out of the message tonight, uh, uh, get this. So if you were asleep, wake up and then go back to sleep right after this, okay? God is taking time to a designed end and purpose. And he knows exactly when it's going to be, and he knows exactly how it's going to happen, and he's going to make it happen, and nothing or no one can stop him. It's going to a designed end and point in time, and he will bring time to an end, and he will bring all things to an eternal purpose. He's working it. 
That's his kingdom. So to say one dimension of the kingdom is, is that it is absolute. God's working. God's moving. I, I know this is difficult when you're hurting. How could that be God's will? How could God allow that? How, how, did that slip out of God's hands like a slick bar of soap? Did, did that get away from him? Did he try and fail? No, he didn't. God is working his plan. He has Satan. He allows him certain space for his purposes and ultimately for his glory. But God is in charge. So when you watch Fox News and you're shouting at the television set, that's kind of like sports. But remember, God's in control. His kingdom is absolute. It's absolute. It's hard for me to understand sometimes. I have to remind myself of it so often. It's hard for me to understand why some things that are so unjust uh, seem to take uh, control of things. It's hard for me to see man do things that mock his purposes, his design, and his will. And it's hard. It's hard. But I have to remind myself. He is all-knowing. He is all-powerful. He is all-present. He has a plan. No one's going to stop him. And he is using all of these things for his purpose. It's true. Here's a second dimension of God's kingdom. The kingdom of God is now. Just this, like this passage we read. The kingdom of God is within you. Or the kingdom of God is in your midst. When Jesus was saying that to the Pharisees, he said, it's present right now. It's invisible, but it's present right now. We, uh, we, God created a perfect world. And fallen man, by his sin, brought rebellion into the world. And he spoiled it by sin and the fall, and mankind is under a curse, and God's grace and God's redemption gives us salvation through a virgin-born, perfect Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who lived a perfect life for us. Uh, you know, when you think about the gospel, you think about, and I've said it since I was a kid, you have too. We were, we were taught this, probably, if you were raised up in a, a family of faith is that Jesus died for my sins. Uh, I want to I tell you, there are, there are th three overarching things that Jesus did that are so important to you. And I would say this, before you jump up and start throwing hymn books at me, the cross itself is not enough. Let me explain that to you. The cross is not enough. Let me explain that to you. Number one, let me tell you the first thing Jesus did for you on your behalf. He lived a perfect life. He lived a perfect, flawless, unstained life. Whether he was a toddler or a teenager or an adult man, he is absolutely perfect. He was perfect so he could be a sacrifice, but listen to this. He was perfect so that when you receive him as Savior, he... he he imputes that perfection to you. Now, he doesn't, you don't become perfect, but he makes it yours. He imputes his righteousness into your life. He lived that perfection for you. The second thing is this. He died on the cross and took the wrath 
that your sins deserve, your life deserves. Did you see a trade that just happened? Your, his perfection comes to you, and, and your sin goes to him. He gives you his perfection, and he takes your sin and bears it on the cross. So we have, we're righteous in his sight. We're cleansed of our sin. And then the third thing he did, of course, he resurrected from the dead. Now you got a big problem, and I got a big problem, and it's death. And I'm looking around the room, and a lot of us are close, right? Naturally close. It's just a fact. But Jesus resurrected from the dead so that we could be victorious over death with him. The biggest enemy that you have is the life-ending power of death. I've had people say, well, death is our friend. It takes us uh, over into eternity to the Lord. No, death is the final result of our sinful fallenness and our being. And death will overcome all of us unless Jesus comes. But his resurrection from the dead means that we will live forever and that we will be resurrected from the dead. So Jesus' resurrection... Uh, that gives us victory over death. The cross, it takes the wrath for our sin, and his perfection is imputed to us. He's a, Jesus is a wonderful Savior. He's a wonderful Savior. The world is spoiled. The world is tainted. But the Lord has presented himself a redeemer for us so that we can be forgiven of our sins have a relationship with God, be used of God, and we actually live and walk and function and experience the kingdom of God now. Now. You're walking in the kingdom now. When we're, when we're saying Jesus is the Lord of my life, we're walking in the kingdom now. Uh, we, we live in a competitive world with the, the world and, and the flesh and the devil, and we're tempted and we're pulled and drawn back and forth, but we live in the kingdom and we're called to follow him and fight that battle in the kingdom. We're in the kingdom now. Three dimensions, though. The first dimension is the, the, the concept and the idea that he is absolutely the king over all things. The second dimension is the kingdom is in the world now because there are these subjects to the kingdom. There are citizens of the kingdom. I think, I hope every one of us in the building tonight would say, yes, I'm a citizen of the kingdom of God. Jesus is my king, my Lord, my Savior, and my life operates under him. Now, the world finds that really strange, but the world's getting so bold that they find it as threatening. And they would like to... Uh, the world would like to, to banish that idea that people would live for Jesus Christ. Here's the third dimension of the kingdom. First is it's absolute because he's sovereign. The second, it's here because he lives within us and he's our Lord and Master. And the third is the kingdom is coming in a consummate form. The second coming of Christ. Now, there are some things in Christian doctrine that I believe, but I cannot wrap my head around just what it's going to look like when they happen. I believe with all my heart Jesus arose from the dead, and I believe that all believers will be resurrected from the dead because the Scripture powerfully and without, it, with, without any temp, 
being timid at all tells us there's going to be a resurrection. And there's going to be a new heavens. And there's going to be a new earth. And we're going to live real lives in resurrected bodies on a real new earth. And it's going to be uh, powerful and purposeful and stimulating and joyful and eternal. And it's never going to get old. And man, I can't wrap my head around it, but I want it. And I believe it. Resurrection. New life. All those things that the Lord Jesus has promised to us. Uh, wrapping my head around uh, the idea of Jesus coming into this world. How would that happen? I, I've seen the pictures that the Scripture gives us, and those pictures uh, are at least semi-metaphorical, and those pictures are pictures of him coming like this. When Jesus comes, he will not come diplomatically. He will establish his kingdom on this earth according to the 19th chapter of Revelation. He will establish his kingdom with violence and force. And I say what John said in the closing chapters, even so, come, Lord Jesus. Let's have it. Let's have it. I get so tired of the mocking of men, the arrogance of, uh, and the strutting of sinful men, the rejection of Christ. And the Bible tells me that the hour is coming when every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. I want to see that day. I want to see that day. I pray that all of us in this room already bow the knee to him and confess him as Lord and Savior. But that's the coming of the kingdom. So the kingdom has three dimensions. It's absolute dimension. It's now dimension within us. And it's coming dimension with the coming of Christ. But it's all under the heading of the kingdom of God. So the best things I can tell you is this. If Jesus is not your Savior, renounce your sin and confess it as wrong and that you rebelled against God and renounce your self-righteousness. Nowadays, <laughs> is like no other day, I think, is that, uh, and I preach it really hard uh, to the church at Fort Smith, is uh, uh, if you talk to most people, if you died, would you go to heaven? And yeah, they'd go. And why would you go? Well, I'm a good person. I don't hurt anybody. I live a good life. I pay my taxes. I don't cheat. I don't lie. I don't steal. What is that? That is uh, self-produced righteousness. Now, that basically says, Jesus, why did you bother to die for me? I'm already good enough. Why would you do that? And really, when we come to salvation, not only do we need to, to renounce our sin and repent of it and say, I don't want that in my life anymore. That's wrong. That's against God. I want his forgiveness. We need to renounce our claims to being self-righteous. We're not righteous. There, there's nothing about us that's really righteous. Uh, God is so holy, and we are so below him, we can't even wrap our head around how holy God is. We can't even wrap our head around his uh, Trinitarian nature. He is holy, 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 and we're not. We're not even close. There are no God juniors. There's just the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and they're holy. I would encourage you to re repent of your sin, renounce your claims to self-righteousness, renounce all your theories. The world is full of theories. Have, have you, you've heard, we talked about this the other night, the people talking about your truth and my truth, and everybody has a different truth. 
that falls into an area of theology called baloneyology. And that's just a bunch of baloney. There aren't 10 truths or 12 truths. Jesus said, you'll know the truth and it will set you free. Jesus said he was the way, the truth, and the life. There's only one truth giver, and that's the Lord Jesus. If you want to find truth, folks, go look in your Bible, and you'll find truth there in God's revelation to us. I would encourage you, if you've never come under the kingdom, to come under King Jesus. You can, uh, you can, you can reject that if you want to, but the kingdom now is in the hearts and lives of people who Jesus sets on the throne of their life. I remember when I came in, you know, the other night I kind of gave you a little part of my testimony and how I, I, I resisted the Lord two times before I came to the Lord. And I was just a boy. But down through my life, I've, I've wondered, why did I resist the Lord? Why did I do that? I mean, it wasn't just that I, you know, I claimed to be shy. It wasn't shy. It wasn't shy. There was something going on in me. And I tried to figure out for a long time what it was. I thought about it. I read the scriptures about it. I, I kind of I tried to figure it out over the years. I mean, I, I, w I didn't spend days in deep thought, but it was always just kind of something circulating in there. What is that? Why did I do that? Why did I resist the Lord? You may be here tonight, and you may not know the Lord. You may have resisted the Lord time and time again. Why did, why did I do that? And, and then I think I came to a conclusion that totally satisfied me. And here's what it is. You know, even though I was only 10 years old, I had to do stuff that I was told by my th authorities over me, my mom, my two older brothers, because they would thump me if I didn't, uh, the teachers at school, all these different folks. But you know what? Inside, they couldn't control that. I could have whatever attitude I wanted as long as mom didn't catch that look on my face. Okay? I could, uh, I could get free from the house and do things I wanted to do, and it was like, it, I came to realize it was the kingdom of Dale. And Dale was the king of the kingdom of Dale. And I like being the king. And I like being the king of the kingdom of Dale. And I realized years later that what the Lord was saying to me, not only to forgive me of my sins and save me from hell and give me eternal life and make me his child, I was going to have to step down from the throne of the kingdom of Dale. And you know what? I didn't want to do that. I didn't want to abdicate. That's what the British call it, abdicate the throne. I wanted to stay. I think I may have been waiting to figure out a way to be saved from my sin, but stay the king. Have you seen lots of people make professions of faith and then they just fade away? You know what happened? They were trying to figure out a way to get saved from their sin, but keep their kingdom. Doesn't work like that. You've got to abdicate the throne, receiving Jesus as Savior and Lord of your life. And then you enter the kingdom of God. You ever had that kind of transition take place in your life? When you get down to thinking about the kingdom of God, 
It's your only hope. It's your only hope. You know, you, you might be a veteran and you die in the United States and your family will get a flag, which is a great honor, but that's no eternal hope, is it? The kingdom of God should be your only allegiance, your first and highest allegiance to the Lord Jesus and to his kingdom. Here's the third thing. The kingdom of God is your great joy to know that I'm a child of the king. I'm in the kingdom. I live for him. That's what all of the tensions are about in your life, the pull of the world against the kingdom of God. Your will against the kingdom of God. And every day in your life, we need to realize and stop and embrace the concept, Jesus Christ is my king. Not metaphorically, not symbolically, not just churchy-wise. My life, who I am, is under the lordship of King Jesus or King Self. And King Self, in the end, will be a terrible disappointment. But those who put their faith and trust in Jesus, the Bible says, if we believe in him, we'll never be ashamed. We'll never be ashamed for trusting Jesus. We'll never be let down in trusting Jesus. In the end, we'll see it all. Heavenly Father, I pray tonight that we would consider your kingdom, your lordship over us, and how you would use us in the world in which we live. And Father, I pray we'd go from here tonight with great hope and realization that all really, even though the world is upside down and backwards and cross-wired, you're in control, and the end will be good. And so, Father, we pray that we'd be encouraged, but we'd also see our responsibility to live under our Lord our King, Jesus Christ, and embrace and value the kingdom right now. And Father, I pray if there's anybody in the room tonight that has not come into the kingdom through receiving Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord, I pray you'd save them. Father, I pray if there's someone here tonight that a long time ago made a decision to try to get forgiveness and get heaven and keep control of their life and their kingdom, I pray, Father, you'd show them their truest condition. And be merciful on them tonight, Father. Be merciful so that they can enter the kingdom of God. In Jesus' name we pray it. Aaron's going to take the invitation. If God's dealing with your heart tonight, I pray you'd respond to him before we leave here. Brothers and sisters and friends, stand up with us. If you want to sing tonight, you sing for the liberty and the grace that God has shown you. If you want to take this moment just to bow your head and remember that the greatest eternal regret you'll ever have is rejecting the Lord Jesus and resisting his spirit. We'll live on in one place, heaven or hell, and Dale said that very well. And this old world is falling and it's fading, and we have the decision to blend in with it and to fall alongside it, to be consumed by it, and then to spend an eternity in God's absence. But I think the horrible thing that makes hell, hell, is the reality that we could have always, in moments like tonight, have chosen Jesus as our Savior, have responded to the conviction of the Holy Spirit, 
Let's not ever live with that. Friends, tonight, if you don't know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, it doesn't matter if you've been to church for the past 40 years, if that awakening and realization has come upon you tonight, do not be ashamed. Do not stand where you are, but come to Christ. Let's sing, let's pray, let's respond.